Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to the Honest Field Guide podcast, a weekly show dedicated to winning in entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. I'm the CEO of Burt Creative, a leadership, brand strategy, and visual identity agency dedicated to helping scale brands and assist with their adaptability with the market. On my show, you get to eavesdrop in on intimate conversation with business leaders and inspired entrepreneurs designed to give you tips and strategies so your own business can thrive. Subscribe and join me each week for laughter, inspiration, and honest stories. everybody. Welcome back to my show, the Honest Bill Guy podcast. I am so excited, excited, excited today because I am talking to Rana Reeves, the founder of Ronaverse, a New York, London-based creative agency and change maker. And let me just say, this is the very first time I have talked to Rana and I first heard him as he was speaking, doing a virtual conversation that discussed investing in minority-owned businesses. I was completely blown away and struck by Rana's honesty, which is why he's on my podcast, the Honest Field Guy podcast. Um, But mostly I was struck by his direct eye contact bluntness and I almost fell off my chair when he said, I'm tired of sitting in meetings with liberal white creative directors that think that because they dated a black girl in college, they know. (laughs) I mean, I just, when I heard that, I thought, you know what? This is someone that I've absolutely got to talk to, have to talk to him because he's speaking the truth and he is not shying away from it. He is on it. And it's, it's, it's all of it. So before I get into talking with Rana, because he's amazing, I'm going to read a little bit about him because he's fascinating. He's outspoken. He's bold. He's brilliant. He's creative. He's all the things that you could possibly want in a friend. Um, Rana Reeves works on the confluence of culture and purpose and how equity can be brought to the entire process. His clients include General Motors, Unilever, Boss, and Coach. Ronaverse, which is Rana's company, works to marry brands with popular and contemporary culture in ways that generate genuine impact while respecting equity across the board. The agency prides itself on promoting creative freedom, breaking barriers into the industry and transcending traditional thinking in support of fresh, innovative ideas. Welcome, 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 Rana. Thanks, Ginger. I'm so happy to talk to you. Um, You are amazing. I love your work. I love your website. I love your creativity. But before we talk about your company, I really want to kind of understand a little bit about your professional trajectory. 
where did you grow up and have you always been in touch with pop culture? Were you on a traditional career path as a kid or were you knowing from, you know, two years old, I'm going to be a creative? <laughs> so, so I grew up in a place, obviously I'm from the UK, uh, called Essex, which is kind of like New Jersey. I was born in the, the 70s and, you know, I can... The, the, the 70s and 80s in, in the UK were a particular time. You know, I'm from an immigrant family, uh, Indian, North Indian. And uh, my mum was a single parent mother in the in the 70s and early 80s. And, you know, there was an epic amount of uh, racism in in the UK. There, there still is, but, you know, it was very apparent. It's when you'd still have signs that would say, like, no blacks, no Indians, no Irish, and, and, and signs like that. So she, we grew up in... Um, you know, within that sort of environment, she was very proud. Um, you know, my, my actual father was abusive and, that you know, he's not in my life anymore. And, uh, you know, she was a proud, strong woman, but I had to deal with um, what comes with divorce in Indian culture in the 70s and having a child. And so, you know, I would say that she, she sets the, the, the bellwether of where I am in life you know, without a doubt. And I, so I grew up in that sort of environment, um, kind of poor but proud, is the, way that, the way that I would say it. And no, I had no idea about creative industries. I had no idea about advertising, no idea about marketing. You know, the, the, the supposed trajectory was meant to be either a lawyer, a doctor, or an accountant, and a bride and kids, which is what <laughs> basically in, Indians are meant to do. So... I don't think I've actually managed any of those, but um, Sailor Beast, so no, I had no idea. But I think that what I do have, Ginger, from that experience is a sense of um, what it's like to be othered or other, right? And I think that for me, the building blocks of creativity, to your point, are probably alienation, passion, and boredom. So alienation, like I'm... I'm non-white or I'm a woman or I'm trans or I'm gay or I'm Indian or I'm an immigrant or whatever right um and I'm not fully integrated into the the mainstream of the culture I've grown up in passion in that I'm still very excited by stuff that I see and then boredom like you know we didn't grow I didn't grow up with kind of like let's go to this place or let's go you know I didn't get on a plane till I was uh 20 so, you know, I had to, my mum had to work and I had to find things to do while she was at work. And now six weeks of summer holiday would be really, really nice. But six weeks when you're like eight, nine, 10, 11 is a long time to have to find stuff to do, you know. But um, so I learned to find stuff to fill in my time as you do. You know, one of the things that is characteristic of entrepreneurs is their entrepreneurial thinking, you know, figuring out how to do things and how to solve problems in their own head and how to execute ideas. I mean, that's why entrepreneurs are special. And I wonder um, if that's kind of your foundation for how you were able to start your business. And I want to talk about that later, but everyone I talk to that has a business, every entrepreneur, most of us did not have this trajectory of really being an entrepreneur. I've talked to a few entrepreneurs that had parents that were, right? Like I talked to the owner of the Chicago Blackhawks. He's the fourth generation owner of the team, right? That's a, a, a lineage of, of business ownership. 
But other than that, I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs and, you know, he's a, he's a white male too. So it's a little bit different, but a lot of um, entrepreneurs that are people of color, I mean, we have to be pretty scrappy <laughs> from the way we were raised all the way to how we navigate through the workspaces, right? Yeah, I, l- I learned at a very early age that uh, my mom worked really hard to create the basic necessities of my life, food, home, school uniform. So from the age of nine, I've worked like from the I think that before creativity, what I recognized was money provides a certain level of access and stability, particularly when you're from an Indian family and there's an Indian set of values of of what is necessary, particularly for men or boys. So boys don't need fancy clothes. Boys don't need showy clothes. Boys don't need any of those things because you're going to have an arranged marriage. So you don't need to, (laughs) you know. And so my mum provided for me, you know, she provided like swimming classes, glasses, so from the age of about 13, when I really discovered fashion and clothing and I suppose youth culture, even not knowing what it was, um, you know, music, et cetera, et cetera, I would get on the train and I would go to London to try and buy clothes or just be within things that I couldn't get where I grew up. I'm curious, when you were really young um, growing up, as you were sort of developing your creative sense of things, which is where a lot of us develop our creativity when we're little, did you have other people around you that guided you at all? Or were you sort of just, you know, one of these genius young children that took all this art and color in and just created new things with it? I mean, who talked to you about this? Anyone? No one. Like, I just think that the thing about other kids is that you meet other other kids. And also, like, London at that time, and still is, was an incredibly exciting place. I grew up not knowing that I was in the centre, not in the centre, but, like, rave culture, pop culture. There was the clash of genders, punk, all of these things I was too young to know. But, like, I remember, for instance, going to a church disco when I was um, maybe nine. It was the first time that I saw a boy and a girl French kiss. And I wanted like a smiley face T-shirt. Now, I didn't know what acid house was. I didn't know it was to do with drugs. I didn't know any of those things. But I was really attracted to the smiley symbol. And I remember my mum wouldn't let me buy a T-shirt. So I remember all I could afford was like a badge. I think in America, you call it like a pin. So mm-hmm. I bought a big pin and I wore it in the middle because I, I wasn't allowed an acid house T-shirt. So there was so much culture around from older kids, you know, and Southend is like a, a seaside town. So they have a bit, which is the seafront, where kids would hang out. And it was called just going down the front. So a lot of my creative education was hanging around the shops, nothing to do, going in and out of McDonald's, going to the arcades and seeing older kids doing stuff that I didn't understand. Yeah. So I would see their fashion, their music, and I just found it so enticing. I remember the exact moment when I discovered fashion. So it was when I was 10 years old. You know, there were like the rich clothes you could have or the, the poor clothes. I never had rich clothes. I, n- I never got them. <laughs> Rana, I mean. <laughs> I remember there was this kid, and Daniel Abrahams is his name. I don't know where he is now. God bless him. But he he was mean about what I was wearing and that was the drive. That's what I mean about this sense of alienation that from that day on, I'm going to get the look. Right. And, (laughs) and you know, it's, I think style is an intuitive thing. It's something, but you need money. Like people can say that style, you don't need any money, but you need some money. 
you, you've either got to have money or be really good at stealing. It's one of the two. And so <laughs> I wasn't good at stealing. So, you know, I had to get money. And what I recognized as well was the, um, the power and the authority and the veneer of acceptability, particularly that fashion can bring to a sense of belonging. And that you can feel not necessarily a sense of superiority, but the armor, particularly that fashion culture brings, particularly when you don't know that you're you're a queer kid, that you know you're different, you know that you're not attracted to the right people, that you don't want to kiss the girls. There's all of that narrative going on behind. So you just want to fit in when you're the only brown kid in like your class, right? There are no black kids. You know, I would go to London and that's where I would experience, you know, black culture or brown culture. There was this huge explosion going on in London. And then you'd go back to where I lived and there'd be like a watered down white version of it, you know? And so you'd have these white kids with dreadlocks and like that was when the Africa symbols were big and red, gold and green and all of that sort of stuff. And I would, I remember I would go to these, like they call them like head shops. I don't know if they call them that here. And so I would be wearing this like Rastafari stuff or not known because what I wanted was to belong. Yep. Right. What I wanted was to be part of something. And so not necessarily understanding the nuances or the cultural resonance of that stuff, but knowing that these are symbols. And like, if you look at it deeper, then people were wearing them in the black community for a sense of like identity. But I didn't understand that. But I wanted identity. It's, it's interesting. And yes, they, they are called head shops <laughs> all over yeah. the world, probably. <laughs> Why do you feel that you felt a sense of a potential sense of belonging with black people versus anybody else? And I'm, I'm real curious about that because I think, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot in the United States is, you know, the immigrant culture in the United States is like be as not black as possible. Mm. So and that was the part of the issue that I had, Ginger, was essentially kind of, you know, I was brought up in an Indian culture that had uh, rejected us because my mum was a single parent. She then in 83 married a, a white guy, which now I love him, he's my dad, but at the time was a real struggle. So I couldn't work out how to integrate into Indian culture. And so black culture, for me, it was, it was less about black culture, more about non-white culture would be a way to say it. The reason that I wanted to talk to you is because of your boldness around racial inequity and racial justice. And you specifically spent a couple of times in the conversation, you know, referencing black women in particular, um, which I thought was really fascinating. I thought, wow, I wonder why he's saying talking about discrimination with black women versus, you know, any other black people. I thought that was fascinating, but I, but I kind of have an understanding now a little bit more because of the way you were raised. I, I get it. I wonder if you wanted to speak on that. Yes, I was raised, my mum is a strong woman and all all through, she suffered domestic abuse and all through her life, she's in her 70s now, she's looked after, housed, supported other women and particularly non-white women of domestic abuse, right, who are more likely to be um, othered by their culture, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, African, you know, and there was no infrastructure for them. So I was brought up with women. But in terms of black women, often like my thing is that I, I exist on this thing of like no person left behind. So what I look at are the communities or the structures where if you lift that culture, everyone rises. 
right? And I think that, you know, women have the issue of gender and then there are black and brown women and the, the stuff that they face, trans women of color, immigrant women, et cetera, et cetera. I think from a cultural perspective, for me, and this is just for me, the, the dominant, particularly in America, the dominant form of popular culture for me is essentially black culture. Mm -hmm. If you take NBA, if you take music, if you take style, all of the euphemisms that brands use or people use is effectively black culture. So if I sit at the confluence of equity and culture, then I look at that as black what? right? Is it black men? Is it black women? And I look at kind of like who, who is being, there's not like an op oppression kind of target, but I look at like, who do I think is really being oppressed? And where do they sit within culture? I also look at what is appropriated from different communities. So if I look at um, queer culture, right, which is, you know, we're, we're coming into pride season. I look at white cisgender gay men and they all talk like black women. And by black women, I don't see a differentiation between cisgender or trans, but I see this appropriation of language that isn't theirs. I see an appropriation of a language or a, a, a way of being, but then there's not the support that goes with that. And that's the difference for me between appropriation and appreciation is I can appreciate your culture, but then I have to acknowledge where it's from. That's why often I'll look at um, black women, I think as well as a gay man, there's a natural thing that I, I shy away from cisgender straight men. Not, not all the time, but it's almost like you have to prove you're not homophobic to me. And the vast majority of homophobia that I've experienced has tended to come often from straight men, or to be honest, white women. So I've not had that from black women or brown women often because they have been yeah. up. Mm -hmm. And they, they get that sense of other. So, and often like young gay boys, like when we grow up and we're not part of, say, for me, a gay male culture, we rely on women. Like I came out through the love and support of women saying it's okay. You know, it's women that first came to gay clubs with me. Mm -hmm. And then now I exist in this completely male world where I don't seem to know any women really, you know, it's the, it's the odd <laughs> gay life. But that, that's, that, that's, I suppose why I look at kind of like the potential, particularly in America of black people, it pretty much goes Latinx, black, and then Asian in terms of numbers. It's a numbers game, but I would argue that the, the, the cultural impact of black people outweighs the, the numbers. Yeah. In Britain, it's different in that you have Indians and then you have Jamaicans, Ghanaians, Nigerians. It's colonial. It's different, right? You don't really have Latinx. You don't have a lot of kind of like um, East Asians, the Chinese, Philippines, exactly. So I'm learning all this stuff in America and how it works differently. But American culture is essentially, to me, the dominant form of Western English-speaking culture that goes into most Western culture, to be honest. America, as a concept, is very toxic for people of color in every single way you can possibly think mm -hmm. of. And um, as far as appropriation, I do agree with you that there's quite a bit of appropriation and there's no credit given ever. Um, I was looking at a company recently. <laughs> the company was Bring Ruckus. And all I thought was, you know, bring the, you know what, ruckus, the hip hop song. And I looked, I just was curious. I, I went to, um, you know, take a look at the company and all white people. But, um, and, you know, that's just what, that's just the way it is. I mean, I don't know that any of us rail against, we don't, we don't necessarily rail against that to the extent that I think that we should. I mean, I think that I feel like it's at some level, we should be railing against 
everything all the time, especially in 2020 and 2021, as we're, you know, continuing on to this pandemic. Um, there's so many things that, that haven't been righted. And I refuse to go back to the way things were, right? I think a lot of people believe because like, you know, you don't have to wear a mask. We can go back to normal. I'm like, there was never a normal for me as a black woman. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you thought it was normal for you, but for me, it's never been normal. It's, it's always been an other, it's always been an uncomfortable situation. I mean, all of us work around it and we, you know, we exist in this environment and we get our work done and we can still make an extraordinary amount of money if we're, you know, smart about how we, you know, go through the world. But in general, um, you know, we have a dual consciousness. A hundred percent. But there's also there's this thing that's changed, Ginger, like there's also this language around it that is now accepted universal language of these terms that I just didn't grow up with. So I wasn't able to name things, right? If you can name things, there's a real power in that. So unconscious bias, gaslighting, white privilege, white fragility. But now I will say it. And because it's a term that everyone knows what that term is, it's like an illness. It's like I can call out an illness now and I have a right because it's like it's a medical, it's a real thing. And what tends to happen is that with all of these things, it's about bullies. And if you call out a bully, then often they, they don't really want to stand up. Who wants to stand up? No one wants to stand up and say, oh, I'm racist or I'm homophobic or I'm transphobic. That's not going to keep you in your job. So particularly in marketing. So now if I see a point of view that I think isn't right, what's emboldened me, and to be honest, it's thanks to the black community and Black Lives Matter in America, particularly, that it can be done. It's emboldened me to say no. But you're right that that has to balance with I still need to eat and pay my rent and look good. So it's kind of, it's that balance that we, we have to go into a room, we have to sit at a boardroom table and bring all of that in. And it's not a level playing field. It's nowhere near a level playing field, but I've certainly got some few more tools in my toolbox that I didn't used to have. I no longer have to fully accept the unacceptable. I want to ask you something. You, you, you brought up a point that I've been thinking about recently. You said that because of Black Americans and Black culture, I feel like I heard you say I've gotten more courage to stand up and say things. When did that happen? Is that, is that something that just happened for you in 2020, this community? There's a fundamental shift that has gone on. It's something that I didn't quite understand. You know, I've worked on Pride campaigns for years, lots of different styles of campaigns. What I've come to understand is that this is about human rights and human rights are not political. Human rights aren't up for debate. They're not up for discussion. So the Black Lives Matter movement and the activists around it have provided, again, lexicon around all of this stuff. That's what I mean about this me to we. Um, have you seen that film Judas and the Black Messiah? Not yet. One of the things that he talks, one of the things that made him so dangerous, and I don't want to spoil the film, is that he talks about this thing called a rainbow coalition. And not rainbow in the gay sense, but this idea of Latinx rights, queer rights, women's rights, black rights, right? Are all human rights. And if, if one lifts, then intuitively they tend to all lift. So when I was looking at the voter suppression stuff, particularly for coach, you know, I have an inordinate amount of respect for a guy called Maverick Carter. He works with um, LeBron and we work on different stuff together, but they set up more than a vote, which was specifically around black voter suppression. I put coach with them because as far as I'm concerned, if you can support 
and change black voter suppression, then by definition, you support and change brown voter suppression. You support and change trans people feeling safe to vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the pincer of this movement, of the whole movement at the moment for me is Black Lives Matter because of the protests, because of the the stuff that they, they there was a seismic shift. It was like, it's like a tilt, like a tectonic tilt where everyone has had to come off the fence. And it's the biggest shift that I've seen. No brand can anymore say, oh, we don't like the gays. What they were able to say around Black Lives Matter, even a year and a half ago, is nothing. They were able to just not say anything. That has gone. As soon as you put that black square up there, then effectively you are saying we believe in human rights, we believe in equity, we believe in fairness, we believe in respect or you don't get to put those squares up. What I realized is the same thing as when you put up a rainbow flag and say love is love. You don't get to do that and not stand up for trans people. You don't get to do that and not stand up for homeless queer youth. The same is when you celebrate women in Women's Month or whatever it is, you don't then get to support freedom of choice for women, quite frankly. You know, it's still a, there, there are lots of gray areas around religious freedom, all of this. But what has changed is that human rights have come off of the political shelf and into the brand world. And if you stay silent, then you're violent. I don't necessarily see the accountability that you seem to think has to be taking place. I'm not seeing it happening at scale. I'm not talking yeah. about us. I'm just saying I don't know no, no, if there's definitely. a desire or a care or, or a passion or an energy to sustain the relentlessness of justice. Do you follow me? It's, it's, it's like a tanker. It's a tanker that's having to turn. This tanker is turning. So I, I point you to like a, a company like Unilever. So Unilever now has purpose at the core of every single brand. And I learn a lot. And, you know, it may not be coincidence that my client there is a black woman. And the president is a Latinx um, man. But like, basically, what I've learned from them, which I can then bring to other brands, is this idea that brands can create systemic change. I didn't know that. And I'm learning. I didn't know that this was even something in my wheelhouse that I could look to do. So if you look at the work that Unilever does around hair discrimination, that they do around stereotypes of black men, they literally come off the fence on a corporate level, right? So they support the George Floyd Act or the Equality Act or whatever. Uh, the, they support everything that is against voter suppression, everything that is against the trans bills that are going through at statewide levels. They come out and say that openly, and then they support underneath that with actual programs that have to have meaningful, measurable benchmarks of mm -hmm. change. I'm learning from that to take that to coach, to take that to General Motors. So I'm having to learn how to be in this way as well. And so you're right that it's not it's not where it should be at all. But I think that what, what I made a decision at the beginning of the year, and I don't have to tell you this, Ginger, because it's, it's probably magnified and a lot worse for you, is it's draining right? It is hard to just live in the amount of trauma and attack and the stimulus around those things day in, day out, continually, and then try and go and sell handbags. It's a lot. It is a lot. I mean, and that's, and that's what I'm saying is that, you know, this type of work is work that you can't unsee it. And if you want to unsee it, it's an intentional decision that I don't want to see this anymore and you turn your back on it. But I want to go back to something that you said, which which I also heard you say during that live, the virtual call. You mentioned that you didn't know this was something you could do. 
Are you suggesting based on what I heard you say that you feel like you're in a position where you can then take your learnings from a company like Unilever? And you just said, I'm now having these conversations with coach because Unilever taught me how to do this. And that makes me think, does that mean that people like us, that we have untapped power that we have not tapped into before to make change? I mean, you know, I need you to talk a little bit more about this because you've said this two times now. Unilever has blown my mind. I mean, you know, you know, we feel we feel powerless, right? I mean, this is why I'm getting at like a lot of us that start our own businesses constantly faced with lies, injustice, asked to do things that we inherently don't want to do because we don't believe that they're right. And we're sitting there feeling powerless. You don't sound like that to me. You sound like you have figured out that I actually can do something and still make money. Yeah, not not always. But I, I have a, a group of brands that, and it takes a certain sort of person. So it's not about the brands, it's about the people at the brands that really are either invested in equity so black women, Latinx, queer, whatever, or they want to truly show up as an ally. What I have to remember, and this is the point I was going to make, is that I made a choice that I have to be the change. Because either you either drown in this trauma or you make a decision or I made a decision that, look, I want to be the change and that's the service that I bring to the table. And that is, like you say, sometimes about saying no which is difficult. You know, I'm 26 years into my career. So sometimes now I do say no. It's having clients that really believe in you. It's having budgets from those clients that are actually meaningful. It's having a fundamental belief in equity. But also there's just like, for all the trauma that I've experienced in my life, Ginger, I know that I'm good at what I do. (laughs) Like, you can't take me. Like, I'm really good at what I do. And so... If I believe in something, then I'm going to give it to you 150%. And I know that it is commercially good and it is the way forward to be equitable. There's just no, like you said, do companies believe in that? America is amazing in that 50% of Gen Z are non-white. It's going to change whatever. You don't get a choice. Neither of us get a choice. It's changing. It's coming. 42% of millennials are non-white. The, the, the figures just are how they are. It's like, I feel like we're on this wave and we're waiting for the change. But commercially, it's no longer acceptable to not change. And yeah, the, we're in this bit where they're like certain brands and people are like holding on with their claws. But girl, that's, you, you all are going to die out. <laughs> I love that visual. They're holding on with their claws because it's absolutely true. It's true. But some brands have let go. Right. And those are the magical brands that understand equity, you know, and and that's the thing that it's about the people in the brand. You know, finding those magical companies and finding the magical people within the magical companies is a challenge that a lot of us have as black and brown and queer people. Like we're just like we don't even know how to get there, like how to find it. It's the hustle, isn't it, that we have to knock on doors. We have to like my mum said to me when I moved to London after I graduated that the, the, the fundamental thing is that I'll always have to be whiter than white. I'll always have to be better than my white counterparts, my more creative, more organized, leaner budgets, all of these sorts of things. And that's still the, the truth. But it's almost like that's maybe like a fucking like marketing ninja because I can do the shit that the other guy can do for half the price and it will be damn twice as good. Yeah, but never ever do half the price. <laughs> just just don't go there. You're going to so double you know the, the price. Is unfortunately, that we have to to get in the door. 
That's the problem. And that's where the inequity sits, is that I have to do the job with six people and my white counterparts, they can build 13 people. And so that's all the stuff that needs to change, but it will only change if I be the change. I have to stick my neck out. I mean, when you talk about when you talk about budget, I mean, when you talk about being black, being a person of color and going up against a white company, you know, you going in there, which is what happened to me once where I had um, I actually had a white woman working at a company and she said, you know, I don't know why you're charging as much. I mean, you haven't won as many awards. And, you know, like I got I got a bunch of other companies that do the same thing. You should be cheaper. I mean, that was an actual conversation. And I thought, well, first of all, what do, what does what do awards have to do with any of this? Number one. Number two, um, you know, I just don't enter awards as often as they do, because exactly. maybe I just don't have as much budget to enter thousand dollar award competitions. But number three, my work is tremendous. Otherwise, I wouldn't even be at the table in the first place, even having the potential opportunity to work on this project. But I was astonished that this conversation came up. But it's always the same, you know, that you're supposed to be cheaper because, you know, the water's colder over there. It's hard. I get to work on some amazing things, but I still feel like I have to work harder to get to work on those amazing things. The thing about equity is it should just be there, but it's not. That's not the real world. You have to I have to go in and build these processes. But what what I'm trying to do is come at it from a space like a mentor of mine, Wilma, another black woman who was one of the first people to hire me in London. She taught me that. She taught that, look, if I had come at this from anger all the time, I'm going to burn out. I have to come at this from teachable moments. I have to come at this from grace. You know, you talked about a woman named Wilma who hired you. Why did you start your own business? How did you even get the courage to do this? I'm not sure if it was courage or just like, I just can't work in those agency systems. Like it would, I think that would wear me out more than the trauma because at least I get, I have some level of choice to be in those systems and work with the people in sometimes I come across in those agencies and be limited. Those agencies are not set up for people like me. So I had to create my own environment where I could feel comfortable and other people could feel comfortable. I want to work with engaging young people. I want to, I want to be excited, right? I don't want to be working with the same photographer again. I had to set up my own thing because the traditional ad agencies, they can't take me. And so fine, I'll set up my thing for other outsiders. And like the thing about equity is it's not the same as inclusion, is that I have I come with whatever I have to wade through to get to that position, as do a lot of the talented creatives or people that I get to work with. It's not the same because the work is so magical from that creativity, from that pain, from that alienation, from that passion that I choose to work outside of the system so I have the the privilege of working with the people that I get to work with. And, you know, Roniverse, right? So it's such an awesome name. <laughs> and listening to you talk about, you know, your world, it, it is really colorful. And I want to understand when you started your company and what year did you start your company and, and, and why the name Roniverse? I wanted a point of view that this is what I want for people. And so I wanted to create a, an environment that other people could thrive and have abundance in. 
And so that's what I try and do with the, the talent that I work with. I'm a sum of the parts of many amazing people that I get to collaborate with, work for, work with, learn from, you know, and that's what the Ranaverse is about. It's about all those people that the traditional ad world isn't giving a look into that are actually the font of all of this work that we talk about, that are actually the people making the stuff that these creative directors take from, that these copywriters absorb from. I don't want to work with the, the middleman. I want to work with the source. And yeah, the source may not want to do contact reports or that sort of stuff. They may have to wade through some trauma. They may have to wade through some communication issues because no one's giving them opportunities. But I'm there for it. And I'm there for it because I have a really, I have a longer leash with some creative photographer or artist or designer that's giving me grief than I do for some account manager that has everything handed to them on a plate and is being snippy. I'm not here for that. So it's because I recognize that that's where the magic comes from. I wasn't brought up with accountants, uh, attorneys, all these things that so many people are just given, gap years, holidays, like money. And so, I, I, you know, so I want to create environments. <laughs> gap yeah. years. I mean, gap years. Who, who took, I mean... But yeah, I mean, my, my, my existence never included any kind of a gap year ever. My mother never had a gap year. She never had a moment. The minute she came out of her mother's womb, she was, she was pretty much working, right? You know, those conversations, Ginger, I don't know how to ski, but I don't know. I don't want to learn how to ski. (laughs) I'm not interested, right? Um, All those conversations (laughs) that I can naturally feel outside of, I know what that's like. And so I want to create environments where the kids coming up, and, you know, I'm 46, they are kids. They're 22, 23, they're kids to me, that they don't have to, but they are also the future of this country. They set the creative pulse. They set the the art, the design, the music, the fashion, the literature, all of this they set, right? Yet they're not welcomed into this area where people are making so much money off of them. And so that's what the Ranaverse is about, is... On one side, creating an environment where these kids can thrive. And some of them aren't kids, right? Uh, On the other side of that, it's working with brands for them to understand that this is how you get the best work. This is how your ad will actually land because the language doesn't feel forced. This is how, like, I talk about ads or work that is, like, professionally black or professionally Latin or professionally queer. Like, you can tell it's just not real. Of what, like, it's, it's like everyone uses the same one black photographer or the same black dancer in front of the camera, but there's no others. There is the whole idea of, you know, the crabs in a barrel, right? So there's one black photographer because, you know, that's the only black photographer that can possibly be there. You know, there's no, there's, and there's, there's no way that other ones can rise up. I mean, in the very beginning, you talked about there being an abundance and there's enough to go around, but, you know, the philosophy of, um, if we, you know, bring one black person in, the whole neighborhood's coming with them, and we really don't want the black neighborhood here. And that's partially what what drives some of that um, only going to the same guy all the time. And especially when you talk about people of color, you know, you know, they've, I mean, listen, seriously, any person of color that's reached any level of anything in the United States has been through the ringer and has seen and experienced and heard a lot of really amazing and horrible things. And, you know, they've been tested and they deserve to be there, but that doesn't mean they're the only ones that should be right. I mean, that's just, that's absolutely ridiculous and completely insane, but that's, 
unfortunately what a lot of us are dealing with. Um, I mean, for example, if you, you go up against and you pitch, you know, you pitch for business, they're never going to hire, or maybe they will one day, but they're not going to hire, you know, three black agencies. They're going to hire one black agency and everybody else is going to be something different. Take Unilever, right? When we worked on the voter suppression stuff, it was uh, my agency and Joy Collective, which is owned by black women. There were no white people on it because it was about voter suppression of black and brown people. But the, the things that I push now are things like, um, so you talk about there only being black, one black photographer. The issue with that structure for me is the agents. It's the agents who are all white deciding that there's only one black photographer. Why? You know? So that's where I start to push back on now. If you take MBA style, mm -hmm. it's a euphemism for black male fashion style, right? That's what MBA style is. So if I'm going to do an MBA style campaign, then the five photographers you're going to see from me are black men because this is about black male style. If it's a campaign about Mexican women, then the five photographers, directors, hair and makeup that you're going to see from me are Mexican women. And if as an agent, you don't have any Mexican women, then I'm not using you and I'll go on Instagram and I'll find some. The more opportunities companies like yours can get, the more opportunities that more black people and brown people can get as well, right? I mean, but that's the Ramaverse. It's not just me as a creative director. It's the photographer, the casting agents, the the production companies, the copywriters, the web designers, the strategists, all of that. What I'm selling is a main vein into contemporary culture. And contemporary culture in this country, particularly Gen Z, is predominantly non-white. That's just fact. So if you want it to be authentic and you want it to be real, then you go to the source. What I'm trying to remove are the people in the middle that have tried to control that and put it through their own lexicon. So the agents, there's just so much amazing talent out there. You know that, right? There's a lot. There's actually a lot of incredible talent. I just recently spoke about the fact that a lot of major brands are very conservative in their creative approaches. But if you go and you look at, you know, some influencers or even non-influencers, just regular average everyday people on a platform like TikTok, and they've come up with some of the most amazing mm. and creative conversations around a particular product that a brand might make. Get the kid, you know, and pay the kid a ton of money, you know, to help you come up with that, you know, with that idea or, you know, go work for running, you know, your company. The main thing, Ginger, with that is for me is, is showing the brand this kid is doing this rather than an ad agency looking at this kid doing this and doing their own version of it. That's what drives me crazy. Yes, right? yes. This, this creative light approach because ad agencies are so arrogant that they want to keep it all in-house as if they can do everything. But yeah, but I can't. don't know if it's, is it really creative light or is it more like just flat out appropriation? Like I said, you know. It's appropriation. I mean, come on, just call it like it is. <laughs> I really want to understand, I have this, I have this challenge sometimes myself, you know, I'm in front of a, a room of white people, white faces. How do you stay authentic as a black person? How do you not be afraid? How do you, how do you not fall into the assimilation trap where I've got to be like them to get this job? I mean, how do you actually be brave? Cause you're very brave. You're very brave and you're speaking your truth. And yet here you are still working with big, big brands. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of what you're saying. I think because I, I speak from the heart, but also the work is really good and they make money. And they, they get okay. Well, you know, there you go. That's it. <laughs> 
Listen, the dude, the dude sells a million, a million burgers for us a day. Yeah, I mean, we don't care what he, he, whatever he's doing, it's working, right? I mean, and that's the thing that the that we're in the business of commerce, right? And human rights, good equity, purpose, being the change is good for business. That's just the fact. Like, yeah, there's all these like the alt right and all of this. They don't have the buying power of kind of the mainstream that is shifting towards queer rights, to Black Lives Matter, to immigrants and the rights that they deserve. You you know, it's just business. It's business sense. And also what I can't hide and you can't hide as a black woman. We like if you're a white gay man, you can go in the closet. I can't hide my skin color and you, you I ooze gay. <laughs> like I can't, you know, so either I'm going to be myself and that's what you're getting and you want it or I'm not the right person for you, you know. But the bottom line is brands need to change like their brand's approval ratings and they need to sell. And that's what I'm good at. You know, what do you think we need to do to help ourselves and younger people coming in, younger creatives? What do we need to do to get through. So I think that, you know, what you're talking about is essentially some form of service. And unfortunately, black and brown people, any marginalized people, we have this like level of service <sighs> that we have to do on top of everything I know, else. but who's going to do it? No, who's but we do have it, to. Like, I, we have to do it. So what I do is my form of service is giving people work, like giving them access to work, access to... It, you know, and then once the relationship begins, it's things like making them look at contracts, making sure they do contracts, giving them access to my attorneys or accountants so that they're not understanding what fair money is, you know, guiding them through that process. Like, I think about, like, I'll name, I remember when I was shooting my first first campaign for Gap, and it was with um, Naomi Campbell. And so, obviously, traditional ad agency will just be in, like, oh, it's going to be this photographer, that photographer, blah, blah, blah. And I remember that I'd, I was hanging out with a, a photographer, Doug Seegers, incredibly talented uh, photographer. He'd never really shot anyone. So I just had the conversation with Naomi. Look, there's this kid. I really rate him. He's a young black kid. He's, you know, trying to make it. Like, she's like, yeah, down. Let's do it. So we shot a gap with this kid that had never done a proper shoot. But, like, I, I knew that, the talent is there. He can click the thing. So I'll do all the rest of the back end, right? The raw creativity is there and the shots were major. So it's my job to open those doors. And now, you know, he, I'm not saying I gave him his career, but then he's got a book. He's going to say, I shot Naomi. I did this. You know, so all of those doors. And you see it with the people that are almost mentors to me. Naomi, Edward Enningford is the editor of Vogue. It's all about opening doors and it becomes a generational set of opening doors. And then as we rise up, now Edward's editor-in-chief of Vogue across Europe, look at the doors he can open now. Do you think that um, Do you think that we're generous enough to open doors, though? I mean, I, I feel like you make it sound really easy, but I can tell you that, you know, it gets back to the crabs in a barrel piece. I just don't see what you're describing at scale. I, I don't think a lot of doors... For the for, for people of color that actually have opportunity to open a door, I'm not seeing them open the floodgates to, you know, like what you're describing. It's based on the individual, Ginger, like I look at like Maverick and LeBron and they open doors. So it's also down to the person and whether they buy into this idea of some sort of service. 
and whether they're willing to open doors. I look at like Naomi and like the stuff that she's doing kind of on the African subcontinent, like opening up to Ghanaians, Nigerians, West Africans. The paradox is you have to get to a certain thing where you're fully self-supporting to be able to then open those doors. If you're if you're at the stage where you're still like, how am I going to eat? How am I paying my rent? Then that has to be your focus because even you existing, paying your rent, winning jobs is still an act in itself. But then when you get to a certain level where you have the, the privilege or the access to do that, for my personal belief is that that's something you should be doing. But you can't say that to every black or brown person. That's what you have to do. Do you think that some of the things that we're, grappling with right now in terms of representation and access? Should, should we be starting earlier? Um, should we be trying to have conversations with the Rhode Island School of Designs of the world or the Cranbrooks of the world or, you know, the Harvard Film Schools of the world to start demanding access to black and brown people at those, you know, Ivy League creative institutions? Yeah, it's, it's difficult because, it, like, like, I have a degree in politics. I'm not sure it's ever... You- I've used it. So like a degree is not something that I look at when I'm hiring my team. Like I just don't, you know, because I just don't, particularly in the profession that I'm in, like if it was like medicine, then yeah, you got to learn to do that. You know, I'm a creative director. I don't think you learn that in college. I think it's intuitive, right? So I think that, I think those conversations are happening. I just think we're at the very tip of it, right? The thing is, Ginger, that the, that's what I mean about Black Lives Matter is that every single institution, creative entity, whatever, has now will have to look at the inclusion, representation, diversity. You're, you're not allowed to anymore. Every single one, whether they have yet is another matter, but it's that tanker again that we're at the very beginning of the turn, right? In the every, you see it in every single like vertical of industry that people are being called out, people are being talked about. Like it, it's, it's like a bit like a snowball, isn't it? But we're still at the like the really little snowball in some verticals and it's a big snowball in others. So it, it just has to be about that keeping pushing. And I learn all the time. I learn about consequence culture rather than cancel culture. Like I'm just learning, right, of these different things because it's all new. Yeah, we are in a new space. What kinds of things are you doing to protect your energy? Because, you know, you're only 46, you said, right? What are you doing to keep yourself mentally and emotionally safe? And how are you ensuring wellness for your staff and employees and community if i take the personal first like so i meditate i eat healthily and i have fun do you want to share some of your fun what's your fun (laughs) i'll give you an example so a lot so many things in america are new to me you know i'm an immigrant i've only been here six years so there are so many i went to chicago for the first time a week and a half ago you know and like you know i'm in chicago i love it there you go and also like Queer culture. So one of the things I love about America is that because there are more black and brown people, there's more of black and brown everything. So there's just more black and brown gay people. So, you know, I I literally just joined um, my friend's ballroom house. And, you know, and that's a form for me of service in that these young black and brown queer kids that need mentors, that are stable gay or trans people, that are thriving that are are in abundance and these may be kids that aren't in it's nothing about creativity 
right? It's nothing about profession. They just need to see that, you know, you can get to, you can get to 46, that you can stay out of prison, that you can work, that you can be loved, that you're, that you're worthy of love. So that form of service is incredibly enriching to me, but also the love you get back from that, Ginger. So that connection, the vast majority of what I do for my own sense of, of, well-being is how do I connect with people in ways that are enriching to me from exercise through to diet through to just joy finding joy how can I have abundance like me being who I am at the age I am doing what I do is a transgressive act in this country it's not meant Mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. it's not the norm so I'm going to enjoy Mm -hmm. myself I love that you brought up ballroom culture I mean, it seems like a very cherished community, right? Um, I love it. It's it's family. It's about chosen family. It's a, a contemporary for me personally. It's a contemporary form of Western gay culture that is non-white. If I take where I experience the most racism now, it's often amongst my own gay culture, like no fats, no femmes, no Asians, or we're not attracted to Indian men. Indian men are ugly. Like That's what I get a lot from the white gay scene. Whereas ballroom culture, again, for me, it, it is pure, unadulterated creativity from the source. Like It's so vibrant from movement to fashion to all of these things, and it, it's but it's also rooted in stuff that I can have more of an understanding about about what it's like to be othered, about what it's like to be gay and different, what it's like to have familial rejection, cultural rejection, and so I find it so exciting. And you know, we're in this threshold where, particularly within the LGBTQ work that I do, that there is an acknowledgement now within the wider world that much more than in the mainstream brand world about the contribution of black and brown queer people to the queer experience per se, full stop, right? So that is, you know, is engaging for me. I think with my team, it's something that I, I I'm going to be honest, like I, it's something I'm still having to learn because I, I, I kind of, I got here through the hustle, right? And I got here through a sense of determination, and just like, fuck it, sink or swim, right? And so I have to remember with my team, not just open doors from the work, but if I'm going to learn to be gentler on myself, to also be gentler on them, that I'm having to learn how to be a boss. I'm having to learn how to be a mentor. And it's not stuff that I, I those are the bits that I, were, I wasn't fully taught because I just had to get there. So I'm having to learn teachable moments. I'm having to learn to hear other people's points of view. You know, Corona has screwed everything. So it's not like I know what the kids are doing. I hate it. But like, It's the worst. Definitely uh, helped me learn boundaries. I mean, I've never had an opportunity really for boundaries because I've been so hungry my whole life as a Black woman, a Black woman in business and having my own company, that everything for me, everything has been a yes because I had no choice. But I will tell you 2020 with the pandemic created in my head a world of no, because I thought if I don't say no, I'm going to die. And it's not going to be because of COVID-19. It's going to be because it's going to be a spiritual, a psychological and emotional death if I don't start saying no to all of these things. And I'm I'm a mother as well. So that has been a lot in a pandemic. And but I love this conversation. You are colorful. Your brand is colorful. You're in an, uh, uh, you're doing colorful work. Your website is full of movement. You just have phenomenal energy. 
you have so much power in your unapologetic approach to combining your economic and social justice with your work to make money. That's something that all of us want to do. And I actually believe, I actually truly believe that if given a choice, someone will always choose purpose and profit over just pure profit. I think most people would like a job wherever they work, even the advertisers we're talking to and we're, and we're having relationships with, they would love to know that what they're doing is actually helping humanity in some way. I don't believe people don't want survival. I think they want good. And if they have the backing and the approval to deliver good and also pay people to help them do it, it'll happen. And so having you out there speaking like this and speaking about these topics, we just need more of you. We need more people that have the bravery and the confidence and the courage to be very demanding and say, this is what must happen. And that's what has to happen in us in order for us to move forward. This has been a great conversation, but before we wrap up, because I always want to ask some really, really quick fire things, right? Simple, simple things. I want to know, you've, you said you've been in the United States for six years, right? So the first question is, what is your favorite cereal? Okay, so I, I eat oatmeal. That's the thing. No way. Come on. Not even Lucky Charms? I'm a gay man in his 40s, Ginger. I don't even <laughs> I don't have breakfast. I'm on the Dr. Pastler diet. I have a protein shake. I'm bougie. You're not even like doing like Frosted Flakes or Raisin Bran. So what's your favorite mixed drink? Does that mean you don't do alcohol? Like you don't do like delicious? I was wild in my 20s. So I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs anymore. Like you got to think, you, you know, I'm 46 in the gay world. <laughs> we're under our own set of pressures. So no. So you don't, so you don't have a favorite mixed drink? Not, not anymore. No. Like my, I, I used, I can tell you what I used to be was a lychee martini. Oh, wow. That sounds delicious. It's Friday. Let's do it. Okay. What's the best movie you watched in the pandemic of 2020? Not the pandemic of 2021, but the pandemic of 2020 or even a TV show. It, oh, it was Lavanino. Have you seen that on HBO Max? I haven't. Okay. You have to watch it. It's this Spanish show about this trans woman I've never heard of, Lavanino. Incredible. Incredible TV. Just, just amazing all right and then how much weight did you gain in 2020 oh i didn't i got six packs. no way i went into i went into this and i will tell you this that i'm gonna thrive i survived the 90s and i survived the early 2000s i'm gonna survive like a cockroach this pandemic <laughs> and i'm gonna come out with a six-pack pecs i got my teeth done in Colombia. i i did not put on any weight <laughs> i put on muscle and i lost body fat Oh my God, you're so lucky. Oh man, I wish I could say the same for myself. And um, your favorite celebrity? Just one. Come on, don't name a thousand. Oh, it's easy. It's Naomi Campbell. I love Naomi. That's my you love big her? sister. Yeah. Well, she is amazing. She's totally banging. Yeah. That's no my doubt. Sister. No doubt. <laughs> All right. And then last but not least, what is the one project that you would like to work on at Roniverse? It's difficult because I think my natural inclination is to say that I want to work somewhere like with someone like Facebook or Instagram that has the levers to really create cultural change, you know. And so I think that guiding them on, they're the people that are really at the forefront of change, good change, bad change, whatever. I think working with someone like that or Google, even, you know, and to just really work on something that creates 
change. That's what I would say. Like if you take the work of Edward Denning Four that he's doing at Vogue, it it's just joyful change, you know, with money behind it. You know, that's that's it. You know, you've always got to put the money behind it. <laughs> that's the thing is, like, I will work for anyone that wants to make a change, that wants to do good and not do harm you know, and has a decent budget. I love it. That's exactly how I would put every single mantra that I wake up and say to my head in the morning when I wake up and I'm going to put that um, (laughs) down in my book. And that's going to be in the show notes of the show. So listen, everyone can find Rana's incredible work at ranaverse.com. I want to thank everybody for tuning in again to listen to the Honest Field Guide podcast. We'll see you next time. I'm Ginja. And I'm Rana. Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Cool. No, I loved it. Thank you. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only 